Just for uh, 10 minutes, no more, um, I wanted to pick up a couple of threads in what we've heard, uh, and uh, not with a, a full-blown sermon, but just to anchor it uh, in actually just the next passage uh, in our walk through Acts as we walk in the footsteps of Jesus. You'll remember that we started our series last week, and we're remembering that the book of Acts is the second half of Luke's book. You could call it, rather than the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of King Jesus, part two, because we see the works of Jesus, not this time in this book, through uh, his own words and actions as he walked the streets of this earth, but through his people, the early church. And uh, we're right at the beginning of Acts 1, and uh, we're just going to read literally just five or six verses And then I've just got a couple of things to say that I think might just help us to um, know where to stand, as it were, as we respond to what we've heard this morning. Um, Acts chapter 1, verse 6, you'll find it on page 1092 of the Pew Bibles. So when Jesus' followers met together with Jesus, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand there looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I wonder if you can remember the point in your life, maybe as a child or a teenager, when you realised that the world wasn't everything that you hoped it was when the world wasn't as it should be. All children have to discover it. And sadly, as we've heard through some of the stories that um, Carmen has told, and maybe as we know from our own experience, some children discover it far earlier in life than they should have to. And yet all of us have to face it at some point in our lives, that the world isn't all we hope it is, that things go wrong, that people get sick, that disasters happen that there are wars and rumours of wars. There are things that make us afraid, there are things that make us sad. The world isn't as it's meant to be. The question is, what do we do about it? And the question isn't simply, what do we do about it, as if that's all there is to it. The question is, if we're Christians, if we're followers of the King, if we believe that God is King, that Jesus is the one who sits on the throne, what on earth are we to do with the world? that doesn't very look very much like his kingdom? What are we to do with a world where it doesn't look very much like God is in control, where Jesus is king? What do we do? Well, it seems to me that there are probably, thank you so much, (laughs) doesn't want to hear me coughing anymore. seems to me that there are three easy answers that we could go for. The first is denial. Um, Simply sticking our head in the sand, working as hard as we can not to think about the tough things in life, not watch the news, not to think about the things in our own life, not think about the things that are going on in Guatemala or Brazil or even next door. Just keep our heads down and hope it will all go away. But clearly that doesn't last very long, 
Things happen in our own lives. Things happen to the people that we love. Things happen in our own community. Of course, the second easy solution, although it's a fairly disastrous one, is simply to despair. To say the world's a mess, my life's a mess, everything's a mess, there's nothing I can do. There's simply despair. Or, perhaps, we can do a little bit more of like Jesus' disciples did in this passage. We can think about a world that's in a mess, we can remember that God's on the throne, and we can demand, God, do something. Do something now. When are you going to do it? When are you going to bring in your kingdom? Verse 6. When they met together, they asked Jesus, Lord, are you going to do it now? Are you going to bring in the kingdom to Israel. Now, we haven't got time to go into all the ins and outs of what that meant, but fundamentally, from the way they, where they were standing, from their way of looking at the world, that was the same as you or me asking, when are you going to put it all right? When are you going to sort out the mess? When are you going to put things the way they're meant to be? They wanted to know. They'd hoped that Jesus was God's king, come to put it all right, the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one, the king. He'd lived in front of them this amazing life. He'd spoken of the kingdom. He'd lived it out. He'd been crucified in front of their very eyes, and they thought it was all over. They'd started to despair again. Maybe the world's never going to be put right. And now that he was raised from the dead, they're going, is it now? Do it now. Make things right. But Jesus had a different answer. Notice he doesn't tell them they're wrong to demand. I do love that. He doesn't tell them off for saying, God, do something. I think we're meant to pray like that. If your heart was even touched, let alone broken, by hearing that story about the children uh, that were meant to be being cared for in a government children's home, or if anything that you've ever watched on the news has ever touched your heart, or if anything's ever happened to somebody that you love that breaks your heart, It's right, it's appropriate to yell, to scream, to cry, to pray, to say to God, God, do something. Of course it is. He's the king. We're his people. We're meant to pray. But Jesus' answer isn't just straightforward. He doesn't say either no or, yep, here you go. He gives them the gift of his ascension to his father's side. It's what's written in this passage. He gives them a promise, therefore, about the future. He gives them a certainty about the present, and he gives them a challenge and an invitation. Now, any of those are worth a sermon in itself, but I want to land with just one of them. But with a sentence, the promise, the promise is that there will come a day when God does put everything right. Right at the end of our passage, we hear the promise. Jesus will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. The picture is painted in the book of Revelation of the day when God will draw a line under history, when God will himself wipe away every tear from every eye, when there will be no more sickness or death or loneliness or separation, where children and adults will be cared for and known and nurtured just as they were always intended to be, when we will know God face to face, when he will make his sort of habitation, his, his dwelling, his living with us when heaven and earth are brought together. We look forward to that day when all things are put right. It's a promise. And right now, right now, there's a certainty that despite appearances at times, Jesus is the king. Jesus is on the throne, that the kingdom of God is real. I don't know whether you've ever wondered why it is that Jesus going up to be with his Father in heaven, what we call the ascension, is something they get to see 
I mean, Jesus could have just disappeared. Actually, I think they get to see it because he wants to give them certainty there is a king on the throne. You'll know, of course, that in our tradition, in our country, a king or a queen becomes the king or a queen the moment their parent dies. Our present queen was queen the moment her father, the king, died. But there was a time, some days later, some weeks later, when she had her coronation. When, in front of a watching world, she had a crown placed on her head. She was anointed with oil, given the the orb and scepter. Jesus' ascension is like this. He's always been king, since before the creation of the world, and through to the end of the world. He's the king. But there was a day when he was put on the throne for all to see. His coronation, if you like. That's in the ascension. So certainty about the future, a certainty about the present, but a challenge, an invitation for you and me and them in the meantime. It's here in these words that is what I want to finish with. They say to them, Jesus says to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. To be a witness is not simply to have seen something. If you're a witness in this sense, you do something about it. You speak of it, but you also have to live it. Why? Well, because if you're a witness to the fact that Jesus is king, then that has to impact your life if you really think it's true. If you go around saying to somebody, um, Jesus is king, but they don't see it in the way that you live and that you speak, in how you spend your money and what you do with your time and how you are in your relationships, they're not really going to believe in the thing you're witnessing to. Uh, It would be a bit like the person who goes around saying, the end of the world is coming, but carries on life just as if it's not. Be about, in school terms, a bit like the person going around saying, stop what you're doing, the teacher's coming but then carries on doing what they were doing before because they clearly know it's not true. They were just trying to scare people. Well, you or I have this choice. If we really believe that Jesus is the king, if we're to be his witnesses, telling people there is a good king on the throne, you and I were built, created to live for him, to live as part of his kingdom, then actually part of being a witness is to live that out in our lives. And that means bringing in his rule wherever we go. It means having a Jesus-shaped set of relationships with our family and our friends. It means being generous with our resources, our money, our time. It means working for justice and for peace for those who have so little of it. It means bringing in that which we know one day we're promised will be brought in fully, the rightful rule of God, a kingdom-shaped world. That's why we support Viva. We support Viva because they are anticipating something we know is one day promised and certain. The return of Jesus, the wiping away of every tear. We support Viva because they own and are certain that Jesus is the king, that Jesus is on the throne. There is a rightful king of this world. And we support Viva because they are helping Christians live out the kingship of Jesus and bring his kingdom into the lives of children and teenagers around the world. So it's not just their work, it's our work too. We do it where we live. We do it sometimes by giving financially to those who are doing it elsewhere. We do it by praying for them and praying for one another. But we do it because Jesus is king. He's king today, he's king tomorrow, 
and one day he will return. And in the meantime, we are called to be his witnesses, where you go to school, where you work, where you live, and to the ends of the earth. Amen.